If you have your swords with you, turn to the book of Luke. And if you're visiting, I'll just tell you this. Um, we just believe in passionate worship and then passionate teaching from the, from, from the Word of God. And there's nothing fancy about it. We just go verse by verse. Uh, at least that's what we're doing at this season of our church's life. And so we're studying the book of Luke. Have been for quite some time. And we're uh, in the transition passage from Luke chapter 3 to Luke chapter 4. Now here's the thing. Uh, last week I talked about our identity in Adam and our identity in Christ. Talked about Christ as the founder of a new humanity. Uh, it was, uh, some found challenging, brain-stimulating. It was non-Western. It was out-of-the-box kind of thinking. But it was very, very biblical. You have to agree with that. Um, but it raised a lot of questions. I love this. I, if people walk out of here having conversations about the message on the way home uh, that are positive, uh, then I'm happy. Uh, and I, I got that. A lot of people were like, whoa, this, this, the coin drops in the slot. And then they have some other questions about it. So, I was going to do a review on our identity in Adam and to set up our identity in Christ, the message we did last week. And it, as sometimes happens here, in the process of giving the review, a whole new sermon evolved on that topic. I was going to talk about temptation, uh, but I will for a little tiny, tiny bit at the end of the message. But I want to go a little deeper with the subject matter of last week. I want to review it and then follow the rabbit down the rabbit hole a little further, okay? So we're once again going to chew on, you know, five weeks ago we thought genealogies were boring and we've had five sermons on them, all right? So it just shows you that when you dig into the Word of God, there's some real cool nuggets to get out of this. So we're looking at the genealogy of Jesus and the beginning of the temptation narrative at the end of Luke chapter 3 and the beginning of Luke 4. Um, I'll read just two verses from the genealogy, Luke uh, 23, 323 and 338. TNIV version. Here's what it says. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. He was the legal son, just not the biological son. But he was the son of Joseph, the son, and really we saw a couple weeks ago that that is uh, the son-in-law of Heli. And then come 75 names that we don't need to go over, which brings us to Adam. He's the son of Adam, who is the son of God. And then Luke immediately says this. Now remember, in the original, there's no chapter or verse division. So this is the next thing that, that the audience hears or reads. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Holy Spirit, will you just land on this message and give it your fire and energy to go into our minds and hearts, Holy Spirit, and open our lives and bring the kingdom and understanding and fullness through this message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, this message, like the message last week, is going to be theologically intense. I encourage you to keep your theological thinking caps on. We at Wilden Hills are not afraid of, of having to chew, intellectually chew on some stuff. In fact, we eat theology for breakfast. We like it that way, right? Amen, somebody? All right. Okay, good. So, so get ready. I guarantee you that if you can internalize this topic, it, 
radically changes the way you're going to look at yourself, the way you're going to look at God, the way you're going to look at the world. It, it just is, it, it's a worldview, it's at least a potentially worldview changing thing. And it confronts one of the most fundamental assumptions of our Western perception of reality. So get ready. Uh, first comes the review. We asked last week this question. Why does Luke do his genealogy in reverse? Usually you say so-and-so was the father of so-and-so who was the father of so-and-so, etc., etc. But Luke does so-and-so was the son of so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, etc., etc. By ancient standards, he's doing his genealogy in reverse. And so we asked the question, why? And the answer we arrived at was this. He's doing his genealogy in reverse because he wants to end with Adam. Why does he want to end with Adam? Answer, because he wants to segue into the temptation narrative that starts in Luke chapter 4. Why does he want to segue with Adam? Answer, because he wants the hearer of this, this uh, uh, message or the reader of this message to be thinking about Adam's temptation in Genesis 3 when they're hearing or reading about Jesus' temptation in Luke 4. And why does Luke want that to happen? The answer is that Luke is intentionally contrasting Jesus with Adam. He's showing that, he's, he's suggesting that Jesus is the new Adam. He's the new founder of an entirely new race of people, if you will. And, but unlike the first founder of the first race, this Adam, the second Adam, Jesus didn't fall, didn't succumb to temptation. And so Luke is tapping into this motif that you find in other areas of the New Testament, such as Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, where Jesus is presented as the new Adam. And so last week we, we fleshed this out. We talked about how is it that we're fallen in Adam, what the Bible calls, or what the tradition calls the original sin. And we explored that concept. We explored the biblical concept. I want to go into this a little deeper now. The biblical concept of holes, social holes. How is it that, and this so goes against our normal Western individualistic way of thinking, but how is it that the Bible regards family units and ethnic units and national units as sort of organic entities, single entities, even the whole race as an organic entity? It just goes so against our ordinary way of thinking. How is it that sometimes what one individual does brings a curse upon a whole family or a blessing on a whole family? Or brings a curse or a blessing on entire generations? Or brings, brings a curse or a blessing on an entire nation? The Bible considers social units as having sort of, they're sort of like organisms that in some sense have their own independent reality. And that so goes against our Western way of thinking. Uh, and and uh, but unless we understand that, we're not going to understand our identity in Adam and therefore our, our, our new identity in Christ. What we saw last week, and I'm going to say it a little different this week, is this. We Western people, we think about things in an individualistic kind of way. We see the individual. And an individual is an individual insofar as they stand over and against the family or their ethnicity or the nation. They lose their individuality insofar as they don't stand over and against their family or their ethnicity or their nation. But the biblical view, which is, by the way, more or less shared by most cultures throughout history, our worldview is very idiosyncratic in that sense. But the biblical worldview is this. Yes, there is an individual 
who makes their own free choices and are responsible for those free choices. But that individual doesn't stand over and against their family. Rather, who the individual is is part of the family, and who the family is is part of the individual. The individual is embedded in the family, and the family is embedded in an ethnicity, and the ethnicity is embedded in the nation, and nations are embedded in the human race. And there is, we saw last week, an organic relationship between the individual and the whole, every layer of the whole. Who the individual is in part defines the family, and the family in part defines the individual. There's a holistic, organic relationship there. The individual doesn't stand over and against those things. The individual is part of those things, and those things are part of the individual. Which is why, from a biblical perspective, very literally, we stand or fall together. Uh, as James Dunn said, no man is an island. He's really just giving a biblical worldview there. You are part of larger wholes, and ultimately we're all part of the whole human race. Unless we understand that, we'll never really understand the corporate nature of the body of Christ. Because we're not just a collection of individuals. We are a local expression of the body of Christ is an organism. It is bound up together, which is why what you do affects me and what I do affects you. Maybe not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. There's a unity to, the, to, a, to a, a local body, whereby, in a real sense, we stand or fall together. I need you to be all you can be for Jesus Christ in order for me to be all I can be for Jesus Christ, and vice versa. Our decisions are not only about us. They affect the broader whole, as they affect your family, as they affect the reality of your ethnicity and of the nation and of the entire human race. We saw last week that having this holistic biblical perspective makes a great difference when it comes to understanding race relations. If you're analyzing things individually, you'll never get the dynamics of what's going on. Things that happened to uh, the, the organism of an ethnicity centuries ago still have ramifications today because we have to think about it holistically. And one either benefits from or suffers from decisions that were made long, long ago. And that doesn't make you guilty for what happened in the past, but it does mean you have to understand that you're part of the past. And if we don't properly analyze that, we never can move forward very effectively with solutions. And we saw last week that Adam is sort of the representative of the whole. It can happen in history that sometimes certain individuals born at certain times in certain places and certain circumstances are in a position to make decisions that have a much stronger influence on the organic whole than they otherwise would. Hitler was one of these folks. Just because of where he was positioned, he had a determinative influence on Germany for a period of time. Adam was one such individual, in fact, the paradigmatic individual. He was the one, because of where he was positioned at the fountainhead of humanity, uh, of the human race, his decision introduced a virus into this newly born humanity that has wreaked havoc with us throughout history. We've been brought under principalities and powers and dominions that we were never supposed to be subservient to. And we've surrendered the authority that we were supposed to have on the planet over to these principalities and powers. We are, to a large degree, an enslaved race. We're not guilty for what Adam did as though babies are born guilty and deserving to go to hell. But we are born in a, a race of people that have been polluted by what Adam and every other individual did. We're born in a polluted state, in a polluted physical and spiritual environment. The human race as an organism 
is infected. There's something wrong with it. And we all share responsibility for it because we all contribute to that with every sin we ever commit. But we also all suffer from it. We stand or fall together, and right now the all is seriously polluted. This is, I believe, the biblical doctrine of original sin. Not that you're born guilty, but that you are born as part of a corrupted race, which makes it inevitable that you will at some time sin. Jonathan Edwards, who was a great philosopher, a Puritan preacher, philosopher, theologian in the 18th century, he said this in his book, Freedom of the Will, most of which I, I disagree with, but this point is profound. He says this in this book. He says, uh, uh, the biblical doctrine of original sin is the one doctrine that has been conclusively proven empirically. What he means by that is this. You can't read and study history without coming to the conclusion that we human beings are seriously messed up. Now, he didn't say it quite like that, but that's kind of what he— We are seriously screwed over. You, you look at human history, and it is a mess. I mean, there's something really wrong with us. History, to a large degree, is a repetitious, mundane merry-go-round of bloodshed, and we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Individual gets power. Individual gets corrupted by power. It goes on and on and on, almost without exception. Uh, tribe or nation seizes power through violence. Tribe or, nation, tribe or nation is overcome with violence. It goes over and over and over again, and we don't seem to learn much through history. Someone said that those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it. Well, it seems like we don't remember it very well because we repeat it over and over and over again. And throughout history, you find, if you study history, it proves the doctrine of original sin. Many episodes where human beings do things that the animal kingdom would never be capable of. We're lower than animals. The, the raping and the pillaging and the torture, sometimes just for fun. That's not just the weird exception in history. You find a pretty consistent pattern throughout history. There's something jaded with the human race. The 20th century is the most conclusive argument for the truth of the doctrine of original sin. The 20th century is a screwed-up century. And what's really wild is that going into this century, people were so optimistic. You read social, commentaries, uh, social commentators, sociologists, anthropologists, philosophers of the 18th and 19th century coming right out of the Enlightenment period. They were so optimistic about the inherent goodness of human beings and the intelligence of human beings. And with all this new science that we're developing, we're going to figure out all of nature and we're going to just create a utopia on this planet. We are on the verge of totally outgrowing our old primitive barbaric natures. No more are we going to be doing that. We are evolving as a human race and man, we're going to make utopia here on earth. Incredible optimism all over the place going into the 20th century. And then the 20th century happens. Boom! Train wreck. Uh, more people were killed in wars in the 20th century than all other wars put together throughout history. It was a barbaric century. Bloodshed and mayhem all over the place. And frankly, right now, the 21st century isn't looking a whole lot better. Uh, I believe in the doctrine of original sin. Uh, as understood in the way I just articulated, there is something fundamentally wrong with the human race. There are, there are a lot of, I think, insightful psychologists and philosophers and sociologists who argue along these lines that what we call civilization, which is a good thing, we're civilized. We're not like those primitive people. What we call civilization is really a thin veneer 
that coats a very barbaric, perverted, jaded, animalistic, violent nature. Just a little gloss on it, that's all. Which is why under the right circumstances, it seems like that whole civilization just goes away. Did you ever read um, Lord of the Flies? Uh, Lord of the Flies, or see the movie Lord of the Flies? Or Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness? I think it's even better than Lord of the Flies. Or the movie Apocalypse Now? I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, uh, there's almost a literary genre that, that expresses this. They, it, people have realized that under the right circumstances, the most civilized, cultured, educated, well-mannered people on the planet can turn into monsters, worse than monsters, uh, and are capable of the most barbaric kind of, of atrocities. What we call civilization is a thin veneer. Remember the doctrine of original sin. Never forget it. I believe that from a biblical perspective, I can safely conclude, but I could just as well conclude this from history, I think, that there is no hope for humanity. <laughs> Not left to our own devices. I have no hope that we're going to someday just figure this thing out, that we're good enough and smart enough to finally correct the evil of our ways. I don't believe we're going to fix ourselves. As I said last week, this is the meaning of doctrine of original sin. When broken people try to fix things, usually trying to fix other people, we as often as not just break them further. It reminds me of a, a thing I had read one time in a history book about how one of the ways that the bubonic plague was spread throughout Europe, killed a third of the people in all of Europe, one of the ways it was spread in the 14th century was that there were doctors who would travel from town to town trying to help people or warn them that the bubonic plague is coming. What they didn't know was that they often were carriers of the bubonic plague with having fleas on them and things of that sort. The point is this. When you've got a doctor with all the best intentions in the world, if they're diseased, their very attempt to heal the disease just furthers the disease. So also, if it, the disease of original sin, if you will, this corruption, this spiritual corruption that plagues us, what it means is that even us with our best intentions and, and our greatest wisdom, when we try to fix things, we just break them further. It's like everything we touch, it, it gets corrupted along with us. We're not going to figure this out. Throughout history, We've had people proclaiming things like this. This is the war to end all wars. That goes way, way back. Uh, we will rid the world of all evildoers. Uh, we finally have the right political system that will bring about peace throughout the world. If only people will succumb to our governmental system, then the world will be a peaceful place. Throughout history, like a broken record, you hear that over and over and over again. But all you find is further breaking and further breaking and further violence and further bloodshed and further mayhem and further tit for tat, let's get even, quid pro quo, kind of a fallen world thinking, and it just goes on and on and on and on. The evidence of original sin is that we're incapable of fixing ourselves. Even if everybody wants to, we can't seem to fix ourselves. And as often as not, we just break it further. Which is why neither Jesus nor anyone else in the New Testament ever puts any amount of hope in the political system or the government system or the national system of the day. Prove me wrong if you can. Find me one verse where there's any amount of hope that the politics or the government or the nation is going to finally figure this thing out and get it right. Which is why I argue that it's a fundamental misunderstanding for Christians today to put much hope in any of that stuff. It's just always, look at be involved however you want. Get involved, you know, believe whatever you want about that. That's fine. But just 
Never forget the doctrine of original sin. Always remember that you're dealing with broken people, a broken system. There, it's disease. There's something fundamentally skewed in the heart of darkness, as Joseph Conrad says. So that even people with the best ideas and the best intentions often, as often as not, further, further the brokenness of the world. Dislike or like whoever you want. Dislike that candidate, like this candidate, like that system, like that nation, whatever. But never, never forget the doctrine of original sin. Don't pin your hope on that working out well, because all of history and the Bible counts against it. There's no hope for humanity fixing ourselves on our own resources and ingenuity. But thankfully, we're not left on our own to deal with our own ingenuity. Amen? Amen. All right. God has not left us in this sorry, diseased state. He has not abandoned us. There is, as I said last week, and this brings us back to Luke chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's a new Adam on the scene. There's a new Adam in creation. There's a new Adam in town who's creating a new humanity. There's a revolution that is afoot. And it doesn't rely on its own ingenuity, and it doesn't rely on getting power over people, and it doesn't try to fix people through legislating, uh, legislation. This is a revolution that is empowered by the love of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the power to repeat Calvary to all people at all times. And the problem the promise of God, and man, is it good news when you look at history. The promise of, of God is that this kingdom, this new humanity, this revolution cannot fail. It will win the day. Light shall overcome darkness. Good shall overcome evil. Love shall conquer the world. It will happen. God cannot lie. I've got no hope for humanity fixing itself. I told you that. Zero. Not yet. I don't have any hope whatsoever. But I am the most optimistic person in the world. I really am. Because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I have no other argument or plea but that Jesus died for me. Amen? You're part, if you've surrendered to Jesus Christ, you're part of a revolution. You really are. You're a revolutionary. You're part of a revolution that cannot fail. It's the one revolution that cannot further break the world. Because it doesn't go forward with power over people. It's a kingdom that goes forward by power under people. It's a kingdom that's committed. Instead of killing your enemies, you love your enemies, which means this is the one ideal that cannot further the mayhem and bloodshed of world history. There's a new humanity that's sprawling out quietly but surely throughout the entire world, preparing the runway strip for the Lord to finally come back and set up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And personally, I can't wait. But it's going to happen. It won't be long. It won't be long. It won't be long. Let's talk about this new humanity. Okay, now here's some, some new stuff. Let's talk about the new humanity. What does this look like? When you're in Christ, there's, Jesus Christ came to give us a fresh start. There's a new humanity. And when you're in Christ, you still are embedded in your family, embedded in a nation, embedded in ethnicity. But it doesn't have the meaning it had before because you're also embedded in Christ. You have an organic relationship with, with Christ and with the body of Christ. And it renders, while it's still, of course, true that you are in the family, in the ethnicity, in the nation, and we've got to deal with those realities because it's part of the world, but it doesn't define you. Those things, those layers of embeddedness don't define you anymore. And the reason is because if you're in Christ, he alone is your source of life. He's the source of your security, your well-being, your fullness of life, which means you no longer get life from, 
your, your family name or your ethnicity or your national allegiance. Rather, you get life from Jesus Christ. So Christ alone defines you, nothing else. See, there's a whole new way of looking at these things. Think about it this way. And this is just good biblical news. When you're in Christ, all that belongs to Christ is given to you by grace. The relationship that Jesus had, because Jesus gives you himself, so everything that he is, he's given to you. And now you participated. You're embedded in it. So the relationship that he has with the Father and the Spirit and the perfect love of the Trinity, that is given to you. Which is why the Bible says you are a participant in the divine nature. You're a dancer in the triune God. You share in that perfect relationship. You're loved with the love of God, and you love with the love of God. You're dancing with God. And the, and the love of Christ is given to you, and the joy of Christ is given to you, and the peace of Christ is given to you, and the power of Christ is given to you, and the victory of Christ is given to you, and the position of Christ far above principalities and powers, seated in heavenly places, even that is given to you, and that's who you are. That's really who you are. That's your identity. That's your essence. Amen. It couldn't be better than it is. That's who you are. And if you understand that, the last thing you're going to be trying to do, if you understand that Christ is your life, and all of that has been given to you, and that's your identity, then, and that's your source, then the last thing you'd ever be inclined to do is to try to scrape up a little modicum of worth by your family origin or by your, your ethnicity or by your nation or by your identification with the human race as a whole. Rather, your life is found in Christ, which changes the meaning of all those other distinctions that mean so much to the world throughout history. Let's look at a couple verses. Let's follow the rabbit down the rabbit hole a little further and, uh, and talk about our identity in Adam and, and our new identity in Christ. Galatians chapter 3. This is some, I'll read three powerful verses here. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. That's what the meaning of baptism is. You're, you have a, you're wearing new clothes. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Why? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those distinctions that mean so much in the world, they form, you know, all the power structure is based on this. Who gets what and how a person's treated, it's all based on these sorts of distinctions. Well, are you male or female? Are you Jew or Gentile? What's your social standing? But in Christ, those things are still here. You are still either male or female. You don't become absolutely androgynous when you become a Christian. No, you're either fam, fam, male or female. You either speak good or you don't, and I obviously don't. Uh, you know, you are either Jewish or Gentile or you're some ethnicity. Those are still realities, and the world still puts a whole lot into it, so we can't ignore those things. But in Christ, they've just lost all that fallen meaning. They can no longer possibly divide us because no one's trying to get life from them. We get life from Christ, which means, yes, we are male or female, Jew or Gentile, yada, 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 but it doesn't mean anything to us now because we're in Christ. We're wearing new clothing. If you're clothed with Jesus Christ, I don't need to be trying to clothe myself with my, the fact that I'm white or the fact that I'm American or the fact that I am a male or the fact that I have this social standing. I don't care about that because I'm clothed with Jesus Christ, which means I'm clothed in his righteousness, which means that I'm have, I have his identity. So in Christ, all that's passed away. There's a new creature in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 goes a little further with it. Verse I read last week. Jesus is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. It's not like a peace alongside of Jesus. No, Jesus is our peace. Because he has made the two, referring to Jew and Gentile, 
but they're just sort of the paradigm for all ethnic and nationalistic uh, divisions. He's made the two one, and he's destroyed the barrier between them and all of them. The dividing wall of hostility. When you get life from your ethnicity, you'll be hostile to some degree to people of other ethnicities. But Christ has destroyed that. Now his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, the new human race, out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both and therefore reconcile all ethnicities and all nations to God through the cross by which he put to death, the cross put to death their hostility. Mm-hmm. Arr, this is a good passage here. Listen to this. In Christ, all those distinctions that have, have historically been the source of all bloodshed and all violence, those distinctions are rendered obsolete. They're still there, but they're not given a fallen meaning because we don't get our life any longer from our family name or our ethnicity or nationality or social class, which means that in Christ, it just doesn't matter. It just does not matter what social class you belong to. There are no classes in the body of Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white, whether you're Asian or Latino, whether you're Native American or Ethiopian. It just doesn't matter because you're in Christ. You're wearing new clothes. You've got a new identity. All things are new. So you are one of those things. You fall into one of those slots, but who cares? Because the slot you fall into is Jesus Christ, and you're embedded in Jesus Christ. So the walls of hostility and paranoia and division and classism have been torn down, and we're all one in Christ Jesus. Not only that, but see, if you're in Christ, and Christ is your source of life, we don't get any life, any sense of worth and self-esteem from our accomplishments or our, the rightness of our beliefs as opposed to all the people who believe the wrong things or the rightness of our behavior as opposed to all the people who behave the wrong way. We don't get life from that, which means there's no place in the body of Christ for comparing either in the body of Christ or with anyone else in the world for comparing and contrasting and for judging, which means that there's no more this religious game of sin gradation. It's, it's religion's favorite game. Well, which sins are worse than others? Well, mine are obviously the lesser sins, and theirs are obviously the bigger sins. So, so we have a little sin scale, you know, and it always happens to be bent in our favor. So we have the maximal sins, we have the minimal sin. There's no purpose for that in the body of Christ. In the body of Christ, there's no, none of this, uh, you know, here are these acceptable imperfections that we all have versus the deal breaker sins that keep people on the outside. No, in Christ, religion has been abolished because all of those distinctions have been abolished. We've all, we're all sinners saved by the grace of God. We're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're forgiven. And that's all that matters. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. I'm new. You're new. The world's new. Put aside all those old distinctions, that silliness, the silliness of religion and oh, pathetic ways of getting life. Okay, that was just a, a warm-up verse for this verse. Here's the, here's the good one. Oh, Lord, give me succinctness of expression. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at this. For Christ, oh, wow, this one is so good. For Christ's love compels us. Suneco, the word there is, it, it, it drives us. We're driven because we, in the note, in the kingdom, it's not fear and guilt that motivate you any longer. It's the love of God. The love God has for you and the love that you have for God and the love you have for other people. It, can, it drives you. Because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Note the holistic perspective. That just so does not fit any of our Western individualistic categories. What? 
well, what is the logic there? One died and therefore all died? But see, if you're thinking holistically, biblically, you can begin to understand it. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. There's a new love that, com that compels us to no longer live in a self-centered Adam way, but to live in a Christ-centered way. So from now on, oh, listen to this. We, no long, we, we regard no one. Everyone say no one. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I don't know, anyone can read this passage and understand it and not think the Bible's inspired because this is just too drop-dead gorgeous for any human being to come up with. One died and therefore all have died. There's a new humanity that's in place. It's a humanity that is dead to sin but alive to God. Now, people still have the free will to choose against that if they want, to opt out of that if they want, and they do so to their own destruction. But the default setting now is that people are in Christ so that those who are in Christ are to look at the world this way. The glasses we wear are to be the glasses that are in Christ. So we used to see Christ, Paul says, in a natural way. as just a natural person. as just a legend or a myth or whatever. But now that we're in Christ, all things are new, including how we look at Jesus. And we understand that he is now the revelation of the heart of God towards every human being. And we, look, we used to look at ourselves according to the old distinctions of the world. My family name, my family reputation, my ethnicity, my nationality, yada, yada, yada. But now that we're in Christ, behold, all things are new. And those distinctions just don't mean anything to us. We've got a new way of looking at ourselves. And the way we used to look at other people. We used to look at other people in those distinctions, making those you know, categories and whatever. But those distinctions now are completely irrelevant. Now that we're in Christ, we see people through the eyes of Christ, which means we see what Christ sees. And it's not the particularities of their social standing or ethnicity or nationality. No, it's we see their unsurpassable worth. Uh, we see why Jesus Christ died for them, and we agree with God for that. And whereas we used to look at people and we used to notice things that we judged, we used to judge them according to whether we thought they were pretty or not pretty, whether they're gay or straight, whether they're rich or they're poor, whether they're good or evil, whether they're friend or whether they're enemy. But now that we're in Christ, all that is gone. It just doesn't matter. We don't look on the outside. We see what God sees. We ascribe unsurpassable worth to people in Jesus Christ. We see people as new creations as they are in Christ. We see ourselves as new creations. There's a new humanity, a new revolution that is operating in the world, which is why Paul says that we can look at every person and we can believe all things and hope all things because love believes all things and hopes all things, he says in 1 Corinthians 13. And you, if you download this file into your brain, it completely changes the way you look at the world, the way you look at people. It is so freeing to be freed from those judgmental categories and to see the beauty of what's going on in this world. I have got no hope for humanity except in Jesus Christ, but in Jesus Christ, I am the most optimistic person in the world. And when you live with that Christ-centered optimism, you now be, you know, you're now given the ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because the love of Christ is compelling you. You got this love for people, you got this love for God, and it, it just kind of sets things up where you start sharing it with people, and a, a, you live as a wall breaker, you tear down the walls, and that invites other people into the kingdom, and they begin to get the kingdom in their mind and heart, and they get reconciled to God, and they get reconciled to other people, and they begin to influence other people who then get reconciled to God and reconciled to other people, and the kingdom just keeps on growing. You're given the ministry of reconciliation. 
Whoa, I gotta start closing this baby. Okay, here we go. Here's how you can think about this new humanity. You can think about the new humanity as a giant Jesus. This new human race, it looks like Jesus Christ. You can, it doesn't look like a political organization, doesn't look like a, a religion, doesn't look like a nationality. It looks like Jesus Christ dying on Calvary for those who crucified him. Forgive my giant Jesus. Uh, it's a terrible statue. doesn't look anything like the earthly Jesus. Uh, and it doesn't even look very loving, but it's the only giant one we could find. So, and I had to get it big enough to fit all these names in it. See, we're in Christ. See, there's the giant Jesus, and, and, and there's a new humanity in Christ. And this is called the kingdom of God. This is called the body of Christ. It's almost like, though, Lord, forgive me because this is almost sacrilegious, but did you ever see the movie um, uh, Ghostbusters? When, that, when Bill Murray thinks about that giant Pillsbury Doughboy. Uh, and well, there's this giant Jesus in the world. It's the corporate body of Christ. It's this new organism called the corporate body of Christ. I know it's a terrible analogy. I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness on the judgment day, but, but, but it works. You'll remember it. And this giant Jesus, to go worse with this analogy, he's gobbling up people. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, this is the kingdom of God. This is the revolution. And he's going around. He's, he's grabbing people. He's, he's gobbling them up. He's swallowing them in his love. Yeah, and, and, and with every life that he swallows, there's a new person comes under the influence of the kingdom revolution that's taking place in this world. The giant Jesus grows. Jesus is getting fatter and fatter and fatter. And you can quote me on that one. The kingdom of God is expanding throughout this world, folks. And see, you'll always know that it's there, but you won't see it unless you're looking for it. But it always looks like Jesus because it is an extension of Jesus. It has an organic relationship with Jesus. And so it doesn't look like any particular religion or, or, or political system, whatever. It looks like Jesus Christ. He healed people, so we heal people. He forgave people, so we forgive people. He loved his enemies, so we love our enemies. He reconciled people to God, so we help people get reconciled to God. He reconciled people with one another, so we help reconcile people to one another. He embodied the kingdom of God, so we embodied the kingdom of God. Are you keeping up with me here? All right. Didn't she do a great job? You see, we do what Jesus did. He never tried to legislate people's behavior, so we, as the manifestation of the kingdom of God, don't try to legislate people's behavior. We, we live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And folks, that is the hope of the world, this kingdom, this organic unity that is spreading throughout the world. And we are here, a local expression of it, uh, but it's a, it's a global, worldwide sort of thing. Uh, I'll end with this. Why is it? I'll put it this way. The growth that is happening throughout this world, that is, with every loving act, every person that gets brought into the, every person who surrenders to Christ, it grows further. But what's happening throughout the world is also happening in you and happening in me. Um, the kingdom is growing in us, or at least it wants to grow in us. Um, how do I say this succinctly? Because we're getting out of time. Look at, I don't manifest the kingdom of God perfectly, and chances are you don't either. And why is that? And the answer is this. When you surrender your life and heart over to Christ, the core of your being, your essence, your heart, your, what the Bible calls your spirit, it is everything the Bible just said is true about you. Your essence is a new creature in Christ Jesus. You're wholly redeemed and seated with Christ in heavenly places. All things, old things have passed away. That's true. But you still carry on an echo, a, a habitual pattern, if you will, from the old Adam. It's a pattern in your mind, in your attitudes. You still sometimes think like and feel like and act like you weren't in Christ, but rather are in Adam. What we call discipleship is the process of transitioning out of our Adam identity into our Christ identity, whereby 
as Paul tells us to, we bring every thought captive to Christ. We get our thoughts to line up with what is true, and therefore our feelings to line up with what is true, and therefore our actions to line up with, uh, with what is true, and that's how we impact the world. That's called discipleship. You're becoming disciplined. You see, it's a transition thing, and we're all in process on that. Temptation is the opposite of that. And we'll get into this more next week. I'm just setting up next week's. Temptation is the pull to not go with the new, but to fall back into the old. As you look at the temptation of Jesus, what it most essentially is, is a, 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 a pull. The devil tries to get him to go back to an old way of doing things. The devil's saying, look, you can stay in power. I'll make you CEO of the world. But you've got to run it the old way. And you've got to do religion the old way. Instead of this Calvary way. Instead of this serving the world kind of way. And there's a temptation there. When you're tempted, there's a pull on, uh, to some degree, depending on how far along you are and you walk with God. But there's a pull to go back to the old. But there's also an impulse, that love that compels you to go forward. You're faced with a, a situation of conflict. The core of you says, handle this in a Calvary kind of way. Don't try to match harsh words with harsh words, but rather come under them, ascribe worth to them. You're not a milk toast, but at the same time, you know, you're not just a pushover, but at the same time, you, re you never return evil with evil, but return evil with good, because that's what Jesus did. There's a core of your being, there's an there's a impulse to do that, but there's also, isn't there? To some degree, a pull to just that Adam self that wants to get even, retaliate, let's destroy this person with your words because you could do it. You're not going to be walked over, you know, yada, yada, yada. That's temptation. Boss asks you a question. You could lie and it would benefit you, or you can tell the truth and maybe that will actually not benefit you. The core of your being says tell the truth because that's who you really are. But there's this old echo of Adam in your brain that's saying, oh, it's just a little tiny lie, and boy, the payoff would be kind of good. You're in temptation. You've got a choice to make. You look at a person, and part of your brain all of a sudden starts gossiping about them in, their, in your mind. Oh, look at that. And then you wake up to that, what you're doing. And the core of your being delights. That love compels you. It, it delights in saying, no, the only thing that matters is that person has unsurpassable worth, and I want to reflect that worth in how I think about them, and how I speak to them, how I speak about them, and how I interact with them. The core of your being wants that. But there's an echo of Adam that says, oh, but it's so fun just to compare and contrast, and I feel better about my pathetic self when at least I'm not a sinner like that person. You got a choice to make. That's temptation. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, uh, what, what needs to happen here, what Jesus did is you got to land in truth. The truth. Know the truth of the word. The truth of who you are. And then it's a matter of yielding to it. We'll be talking about that more in the weeks to come. What I want to do here is this. Uh, I, I want to transition to another worship service. And I, I invite anyone to join this, whoever wants to join. Um, if you're here, as we're getting ready for this, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, please, don't leave in that condition. Come up here to this table up here. Uh, there'll be a person up here who will be glad to share with you how to surrender your life to Christ and join the revolution. Become part of this revolution that's going on. It may be that you're here and, and, and uh, you're in the grip of some kind of temptation. I want to especially encourage you to come forward here and just spend some time worshiping God and praying. There'll be prayer ministers on the side of the, uh, of the altar. And if you would like some individual prayer, feel free to come up here. Or if you just want to come forward and just worship the Lord a little bit, Dave is going to lead us in, in, in some worship. So would you stand to your feet? And I close with this benediction. Also, as you leave, 
in honoring those who are coming forward to just join in this worship service, uh, please take your conversations out in the gathering area and spend time meeting people out there, but do it out there, not in here. So Father, we thank you for calling us, redeeming us, saving us, cleansing us, and giving us a new identity in Christ Jesus. And as we leave here, Lord, our prayer is that you, Holy Spirit, would help us as we face a hundred temptations a day to fall back in the old self. Help us, Lord God, to move forward, to know who we are, to yield to the power that you've placed within us, to manifest the truth in Jesus Christ instead of the lie of Adam. And then use it to build your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Praise God. Come forward.